Good morning, Redemption family. Thank you so much for joining us again for Gather Time. I hope you're staying warm this week. For those that missed last week's announcement, our staff and elders are busy making plans for our Christmas services. You may be wondering what those services will look like this year. Well, get your calendars out and get ready to write down this information. We're excited to announce that we are holding three in-person services on Christmas Eve. One at 2 p.m., one at 4 p.m., and one at 6 p.m. And on Boxing Day, Sunday, December 26th, we'll be holding one service at 10 a.m. Then on January 2nd, we're back to our normal two services at 9 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. All right, listen up, Redemption Women. Come and celebrate the Christmas season by attending Celebrate Hope on Friday, December 10th. This is a great chance for fellowship together as we pause and reflect on the true meaning of Christmas amidst an otherwise busy time of year. There will be some fun things for you to enjoy, including vendor tables for Christmas shopping, sweet treats, giveaways, and a photo booth to snap a picture with family and friends. The doors will open at 6.30 p.m. and the program begins at 7.30 p.m. Registration is required. Just head to the website rbclondon.ca slash women. Finally, as you have seen around Redemption, we are participating in Operation Christmas Child this year in conjunction with Samaritan's Purse. This week and next week are the only weeks that we are collecting the shoeboxes. So please bring those pre-filled shoeboxes to the church on Sunday and drop them off downstairs by the kids registration area. For more information on the shoeboxes, check out their website, samaritanspurse.ca. Well, that's all for me today. I hope you guys have a great week. Enjoy the service. And as always, God bless. Good morning, church family. And a warm welcome to our guests. We're so glad you're here today. Let's all stand and we'll start by remembering all the people who served and sacrificed so that we could enjoy our freedom that we have today. Let's pause and pray. Thank you, Lord, for all the veterans. We remember and we're thankful to you for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Your majesty, 
Why the curse of sin is broken There's a reason why the 
darkness runs from light there's a reason why we stand here now forgiven jesus is alive there's a reason why we are not overtaken there's a reason why we sing on through the night there's a reason why our hope remains eternal jesus is alive praise the king he is risen praise the king he's alive praise the king that's defeated hallelujah he's alive there's a reason why our hearts can be courageous there's a reason why the dead are made alive there's a reason why we share his resurrection jesus is alive praise the king Yeah. 
God who heals, we sing to the God who saves, we sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross, then he rose up from that grave, my God still rolling stones away. I can see beyond 
the cross put the enemy to shame now my song echoes through an empty grave because the cross put the enemy to shame now my song echoes through an empty grave because the cross put the enemy to shame Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and so we thought it would be appropriate and proper to pause in our service and pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith and their witness in Jesus Christ. So would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we do want to pray for our brethren around this world undergoing persecution in many places, in so many ways. Our hearts lean towards them. Our souls pray for their protection, for their provision, 
for their comfort, for their care. We rejoice with the psalmist that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So, Father, would you pour out your abundant grace on those who are incarcerated, those who are under severe restrictions, those who live with a constant threat of arrest, of beatings, of loss, of hatred, of persecution and death. We pray for grace upon grace for them. We're thankful that their hope is in you, a living Savior, an all-powerful sovereign, an all-knowing Lord, and an ever-present comforter in your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you provide for them and for their loved ones? Would you strengthen their hands to the plow? Would you encourage their hearts, breathe oxygen into their souls? Would you firm up their faith? And Lord, we pray that you would give them a boldness even in the midst of persecution for Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that of the apostles who prayed in Acts 4 when they were being threatened from the, by the very ones who had insisted Jesus be put to death. They prayed this, do, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place and to look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Father, we thank you for the encouragement in Peter that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Our prayer is that you would pour out blessing upon blessing on these, our brothers and sisters, who are suffering for your name's sake. Father, I pray for us as well that we would learn from Jesus' example and from our family members who are now suffering in this world that when persecution comes here to this country, by your grace you would allow us to stand firm in our faith, vocal in our witness, bold in our proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Father, we pray right now for those who are suffering. We pray the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We pray and ask this in the name of the one who knows every name of everyone who is suffering. We pray in the name of the one who knows every tear they shed. We also pray in the name of the one who will bring to judgment those who bring the persecution upon them. So Father, this is our heart. This is our plea. This is our prayer for our brethren to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and establish them in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together here again. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God. 
This is my story. 
Well, good morning, one and all. It is great to be back with you, and I encourage you to continue to worship with me by taking God's Word and turning together to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. I think it was 35 years ago my older sister was married. And on the night before her wedding, her future husband, my future brother-in-law, and the groomsmen, and a number of friends went out on the town. We were a pretty exciting bunch. I think we ended up in a pizzeria in Toronto. That was the extent of it. And there we were, maybe a dozen or so of us, and we walked into this pizzeria. And there were other patrons, other people there waiting to be served, waiting to be seated. And as we marched in, this group of young men, a middle-aged woman saw us and simply looked at us and asked, what's the occasion? And my brother-in-law, future brother-in-law, that evening anyway, who is an outgoing fellow and uh, just the top of his lungs, all excited, I'm getting married tomorrow. And this woman proceeded to look him dead in the eye. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> well, we had a good time anyway. <laughs> cynicism. Cynicism. A cynical view of marriage. It is far too prevalent today, isn't it? Uh, marriage portrayed as a burden, chore, ball and chain. I mean, we need to look no further than the plummeting marriage rate among young people in our society. We are, to a great extent, a society plagued by a very cynical view of marriage. And so my goal this morning, I'm going to state it right at the outset, stay on track, and hopefully I pray by God's grace, accomplish my goal this day, is to replace that cynical view with a biblical view of marriage. That's our goal. We want to push out that cynical view and leave here this morning, this day, with a very biblical view of marriage. And to that end, 
If you have found Matthew chapter 19, I invite you to follow along as I read for us now the first 12 verses. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Right back with me to the start, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings. It's a wonderful little statement because it sets the context for our passage of Scripture. Matthew uses that phrase, when he had finished, five times in this gospel account. He uses it way back, right at the end of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished. It brings to a conclusion the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first major discourse in the book. He uses it again right at the end of chapter 10. As a matter of fact, I think it's verse 1 of chapter 11. When Jesus had finished, and that's a marker, it's an indicator that he's transitioning. He has just completed in chapter 10 Christ's second major discourse. He uses it for a third time. I think it's verse 53 of chapter 13. When Jesus had finished. And that completes his third major sermon, the parables of the kingdom. He's going to use it on a fifth occasion. Chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished to mark the conclusion of Christ's fifth sermon in chapters 24 and 25. So here we have it. It's the fourth instance, chapter 19, verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. In chapter 18, then, you have Christ's fourth major discourse. That is how Matthew structures this book. And the entire structure hangs on that little phrase. And all of his material is intentionally, purposefully organized around these five major sermons. So as we transition now, we hear the phrase in verse 1 of chapter 19, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, we understand we have just finished a major chunk, a major sermon. We know that the fifth sermon looms large 
in chapters 24 and 25, and right now in chapters 19 through 23, these intervening chapters, we have a section where Matthew returns to his narrative, and we are to interpret this section as a whole, and we are to take note of a particular group or particular groups that step to the forefront in this section. We know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, the enemies, the declared enemies of the Lord Jesus. And it is then in verse 3 that we read of these Pharisees, and they come up to the Lord Jesus, and they are trying to pick a fight. They are itching for a fight. They want to embarrass the Lord Jesus publicly. They want to undermine His reputation and His authority. And so they come with a question. This question is intentionally designed. They are attempting to drag the Lord Jesus into a debate among the Jewish leaders because the Jewish leaders are divided over the cause, the legitimate cause of divorce. Some affirm that divorce, unacceptable, under any conditions, any circumstances. Right through to the other extreme, those who will permit divorce and allow divorce for the slightest imperfection, the slightest infringement, the slightest transgression, which could be as trivial, sister, as burning your husband's toast in the morning for breakfast. They're struggling internally with this debate. They want to drag the Lord Jesus into it. And so they come with this question then in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Christ, He who is the personification of wisdom, Christ in whom all wisdom dwells, what does He do? He takes them back to the book of beginnings. He takes them all the way back to Genesis 2, 24, and he affirms Scripture, God's design in the beginning. And by affirming Scripture, he gives his answer. And so look at the fourth verse. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, literally glued together, let not man separate. They're not satisfied. Again, they want to have this down-and-out public brawl confrontation with the Lord Jesus. And so they come with a second question, verse 7. And here they're no longer attempting to drag them into their inner fighting. But here they're trying to pit the Lord Jesus against Moses. That what you seem to be affirming, Jesus, is actually contrary to what Moses declares in the law. And so look at their second question, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one? They're quoting from Deuteronomy 24. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Christ gives his response in the eighth verse. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I've just explained to you 
what it was in the beginning. I've just quoted for you Genesis 2.24. I've just made it clear that God brought Adam and Eve together, husband and wife. He has joined them together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. I've just affirmed that. Moses when he gave that legislation in Deuteronomy 24, it was a temporary legislation. Moses was not contradicting, contravening, or doing away with God's good plan or design. Moses gave that legislation because the, there was a problem that was out of hand. And the problem was this, your forefathers were divorcing their wives at the drop of a hat. And they were divorcing them for any trivial matter. And they were, they were relegating, they were condemning these women to a destitute existence. This was a problem that was out of hand because of your hardness of heart. And so this temporary legislation was introduced to bring some order to the chaos. This temporary legislation was introduced to protect these women who were, who were destitute and cast aside. But it was not so from the beginning. God's plan for marriage going all the way back to the creation account was simply this. He fashioned the male and female, and He brought the husband and the wife, Adam and Eve, together. And He declared, they shall be one flesh. And what God has glued together, let no man separate. The Pharisees disappear for a season. Oh, they're coming back in this section. And at other times, it'll be the Sadducees. At other times, it'll be the chief priests as they launch these attacks upon the Lord Jesus. But what is most interesting, I find fascinating in our text, is the transition that takes place in 11th verse. The 10th verse, rather. The Pharisees just sort of disappear into the background. And it's the disciples who, as more often than not, would have been better off not saying anything but they see fit to speak, and they draw a conclusion from what the Lord Jesus has said. They draw a conclusion. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Why such cynicism? The Lord Jesus addresses their remarks. He says, verse 11, yeah, not everyone can receive this saying. You're true. It's true. Some men, some women are called to remain single. Some men, some women are called to a single life. The Apostle Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 7. That is a legitimate call. That is a God-honoring, potentially God-glorifying call. That some are called to live and pursue a celibate life for the sake of the kingdom. And that God calls some to that, and He equips and enables them to live that life. And so he says, he recognizes that. Not everyone, verse 11, can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from their birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. But my dilemma, my concern, my question is this. In light of what the Lord Jesus has articulated in verses 5 and 6 concerning marriage, and God's good plan and design for the marriage institution. The disciples in the 11th verse, where does this cynicism come from? Verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, 
it is better not to marry. I can only conclude that at this juncture anywhere, anyway, there is something sorely lacking in the disciples' understanding when it comes to marriage. That when it comes to what Christ has affirmed in quoting Genesis 2, 24, and clearly puts before them God's intention right from creation, that there is something amiss, something not quite right in the disciples' understanding of this divine institution. And so what I want us to focus on this morning is to push out this cynical attitude and to replace it with the biblical. Now, we're not going to look at everything in detail in these verses. I don't have to. The very tricky, confusing, potentially perplexing subject of divorce I'm actually not going to go anywhere near it. I don't have to because Pastor Norm preached a sermon on it mid-January. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, the Lord Jesus makes almost exactly the same comments, remarks, as He makes here. And so I can simply say amen, ditto, to Pastor Norm's sermon. And if you didn't hear that or you want to hear it again, you can access it on the church website. I want us to narrow our focus and really resolve this then this dilemma of the cynical on the one hand and what it means to replace it with the biblical and what it will mean if we really grasp and take to heart Genesis 2:24 what it will mean for our understanding appreciation of and approach to this divine institution known as marriage and so i'm going to affirm three implications i'm going to limit my remarks to three comments, principles, truths that I trust will accomplish our end this day. And so here is the first. The first implication of Genesis 2:24: what God has joined together must be governed by God. That only makes sense. If God made them male and female, and if God brought Adam and Eve together, and if God made them one flesh, and if God declared what I have joined together, man and woman, woman, whereby they have become glued together, one flesh in my estimation, it only makes sense that what God has joined together must therefore be governed by God. The main point is this, we must therefore pursue God's way when it comes to marriage. Only His will, as declared in His Word, leads to blessedness. All other ways end in sorrow, frustration, and disappointment. To really drive this home, I want to share with you the eight essential ingredients of marriage that emerge from the creation narrative. The account of creation as we have it back there in Genesis 1 and 2, eight essential ingredients. I warn you, I could preach a sermon on each of these ingredients. 
I'm not going to. I'm simply doing a flyover. 30,000 feet. We're passing over, just looking down, eight mountaintops, eight peaks that we can see from up there. We're not going to get into the nitty and gritty. It's important to. Now is not the time. But I'm simply going to give you these eight essential ingredients. They're going to come up on the screens behind me, and you can see these, and I want to affirm them for you this morning. Ingredient number one is this, equality. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them, male and female, created in the very image of God, inherent, intrinsic, equality, worth, value. The second essential ingredient is this, intentionality. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Intentionality. Yes, a significant part of that intentionality, of that purposefulness, is the bearing of children and the raising of family, but is not exclusive to that. Some couples, by God's design, won't have children. And yet this filling of the earth, and exercising this creation mandate and recognizing that every couple by divine design has a purpose. God has a far greater purpose than our immediate existence 24-7 as He seeks to glorify Himself in this world. The third essential ingredient is this, harmony. Genesis 2, 22, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Oh, there's so much there. But it conveys to us closeness, does it not? It conveys to us this idea of harmony, living in harmony, and codependence one upon another. Essential ingredient number four, exclusivity. Genesis 2, 24. A man shall leave his father and mother. We see a couple, when they marry, they're starting something new, and they are starting something that usurps all other relationships, and that for them, in their immediate context, has priority, precedence, supremacy all of, over all other relationships. Exclusivity, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, the fifth essential ingredient is this, fidelity. Genesis 2, 24, the man will hold fast to his wife, faithful to her, her faithful to him. Essential ingredient number six, unity. And they shall become one flesh. That yes, they enter into a covenant between, before God and man, and that that covenant is consummated in the marriage bed, and in God's estimation, in His reckoning, that man, that woman, that husband, that wife, they now constitute one body. They are now one flesh in His sight. Essential ingredient number six, monogamy. Genesis 2, 25, and the man and his wives, most certainly not. 
the man and his wife, one man, one woman. And the eighth essential ingredient, intimacy, Genesis 2, 25, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. It pains me to do it, but I'm going to hazard a guess, and it's not even a guess. In a group this size, in addition to the people who are watching today, I can almost with absolute certainty affirm that someone somewhere in this auditorium at home right now, your marriage is not going well. And uh, I, I, I feel it. I feel it for you. And it has not been going well for months, dare I say, perhaps even years. I want to say three things to you. And ha having, having said these three things that I trust you'll receive in the spirit they're intended and you'll receive them pastorally, having said these three things, I want to beg you and plead with you to reach out to the leadership of this church you have, if you have not already. That's what they're here for. That's what these shepherds are here for, to reach out for help and to be thinking in terms of these three words of counsel I want to give you right now as you look at your marriage, perhaps unraveling before your very eyes, or you look at what seem to be insurmountable problems and issues that have arisen in the marriage, as you simply sit there in the evening, quiet, in the dark, and just think to yourself, this is, this is not what I signed up for, and this is not what I, what I saw coming. Three words of counsel, okay? And again, I'm doing this quickly. But these are three words of counsel that really need to be unpacked over time. The first is this. You need to get back into the shadow of the cross. All right? You need to live daily in the light of the gospel. You, you don't need to go too far in Matthew's gospel account. What, what you really need to do is just go back into chapter 18. If you were here last week, you know what I'm referring to. You just need to go back to that parable with which the Lord Jesus concludes that fourth sermon. Do you remember the parable? There's a master, right? There's servant one, and there's servant two. What's going on in those two relationships? Servant one owes his master a debt he can never, ever repay. 10,000 talents in the text, meaningless to us. We're talking billions of dollars, the Lord Jesus is speaking by way of hyperbole. He is exaggerating to make his point. What's his point? This first servant could never, ever, ever, ever repay this debt. Yet what does his master do? He shows him mercy. He wipes the slate clean. And then that first servant, what does he do? He goes out and finds servant number two who owes him 100 denarii. So several months' wages, and he grabs him by the neck. He has him thrown into prison. He has his family and possessions sold, and he makes it clear you will languish in that prison cell until you pay back every last penny. The master hears of what that servant has done. What's his response? He takes that wicked servant and he throws him into prison. And what is the point that the Lord Jesus is making? There are lots of details in here. In a parable, do not get lost in the weeds. He's just making one point. What is his point? 
Mercy experienced is mercy dispensed. That's his point. Mercy received is mercy given. That when I understand how much God Almighty has forgiven me, when I just take the time, you might want to do this, and sit down with a piece of paper, or there I am on my laptop, and try to write down every sin I have ever committed. I don't think we could do that for the past week. Every wrongdoing committed, every act of sin we have committed through our life, everything we have failed to do, sins of omission, every word, oh my friend, every word, that we will give an account for on the judgment day. It gets even worse. Every thought, every thought, you try tabulating. Good luck to me if I were to try to tabulate and count up my multitude of sins. And yet His mercy covers it all. Those crimson red stripes on the back of the Lord Jesus cross out and cancel out each and every sin. When I get that, do you know what it cultivates in me? Yes, a willingness to forgive others as we saw yes, last week. It cultivates poverty of spirit in me. It breaks me. I'm a broken man. It, 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 it engenders humility, gentleness in my dealings with others. Why? because I am a great debtor who has been forgiven much. This is the starting point for all of our relational issues, not just those that occur in the context of the marriage. As a matter of fact, there is nowhere to go in resolving our relational issues if we are not daily living in the shadow of the cross and crushed by the immensity of His forgiveness. And having been crushed by His forgiveness, oh, we deal with others from this posture, this attitude known as poverty of heart, poverty of spirit. You could come to me for marriage counseling, and we could have 100 sessions together, but if that first word of counsel were not heeded, you'd be wasting my time. I hate to say it. It has to be said. It would be a waste of time. There is nowhere to go in resolving relational issues until the gospel has taken deep root in our hearts, and we understand we are debtors, debtors to God's mercy. The second word of counsel is this. I've given you eight essential ingredients of marriage. You need to understand whatever problem might be afflicting your marriage today, however you would articulate it, define it, express it, write it down. You're thinking right now, well, this is the problem. This is, this is why things have not been going well the past year or two. Whatever it is, you can draw a direct line between it and one or more of those eight essential ingredients. Every marital problem, every marital issue stems from a failure to understand, apply, follow God's way as it is revealed in those eight essential ingredients. And so a time studying those, a time really wrestling with these and taking them to heart. And then my third word of counsel in a, in a counseling context would be very simple, very pointed, very straightforward.
in light of step one, step two. It's a question. What do you need to confess? And my friend, what do you need to change? I may just be speaking to one couple right now, and it's worth it. Praise God if I am, and this is resonating with one couple. There it is. There is grace. There is help. There is strength. And there is a promise, is there not? God is able to change. God is more than willing to forgive. And God is more than able to restore. And there they are. You get in the shadow of the cross. You understand what God's way is when it comes to marriage. And then you get serious when it comes to what it means to confess, what it means to change. And to help you with all that, you need to reach out for help. You need to extend a hand for help and cry out to someone in this church, one of the biblical counselors, care group leaders, elders, Pastor Norm himself. It's not going well. As a matter of fact, it's turned into a bit of a train wreck. We need help. And through those three steps, by God's grace, oh, there are answers. There is hope beyond all hope. And there is the power for change as rooted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second implication I want to draw from our text is as follows. What God has joined together must be surrendered to God. Well, if He's joined it together, if He's created this one flesh, then in turn we need to turn it over. We need to turn over our marriages, surrender them to God. The main point is this. We must prize God's sovereignty. He entrusts, gives spouses to each other. This is a stewardship to be nurtured, guarded, and cherished. It faces many challenges in our day. Not an exhaustive list, but here are three of the principal challenges we face today. Number one, for many of us, sex has become an idol. That will make it impossible to surrender our marriage to God because sex has become an idol. We equate lust with love. Well, the temperature of the society in which we live is unbelievable. And the moral degeneracy that we see practiced around us, not merely practiced, but celebrated in our day, was inconceivable but a few decades ago. And if you think we as Christians are walking merrily through all this unscathed, you are naive, my friend. And I make no apologies for saying that. It is influencing us and wreaking havoc in our lives in unbelievable ways. Hear this, please. Sex is good, but it is not a God. It's a God in the eyes of our society. To not indulge and celebrate in sexual wantonness in our society is actually viewed as an abnormality. And this is the day and age in which we find ourselves. And if we have succumbed to that thinking, it will make it impossible to surrender our marriage to God. Oh, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Second challenge is this, romance in our day has become an idol. I'm not saying, brother, sister, romance is bad. Valentine's Day will be here soon enough. Start making your plans now. That's wonderful. But if you interpret romance through the Hallmark Channel, 
we've got issues. Because romance in our day is what? It is a warm, fuzzy feeling that I cannot control. And we talk about falling in love. And the heart has reasons that the mind never understands. Here's the problem. You can fall out of what you fall into. Here's the problem with that notion of romance. That young man enters that wedding with all this starry-eyed, hallmark idea of romance. Three years in, he's not feeling it anymore. What's his conclusion? I must not be in love anymore. Why? Because he has made an idol of romance. Does God fall in and out of love? I sure hope not. Does God fall in and out of love? Is God's love a warm, fuzzy feeling that He can't control? Well, friends, we need a far more biblical understanding of love in our day and not fall prey to the idol of romance. Because if we do, we will be incapable and unwilling to surrender our marriages to God. The third challenge is this. Marriage itself for some have become an idol. What do I mean by that? I mean simply this, brother. You think your wife was put on this earth to make you happy. Or sister, you think your husband was put on God's green earth to make you happy. You think your happiness, your meaning, your satisfaction, your joy is all bound up in that significant other. I'm going to burst your bubble. Pop. Here it is. Your spouse was not put on this earth to make you happy. That is not her calling. You put far more on her than God ever has. And sister, your husband was not put on earth to make you happy. We are to find our happiness in God and in God alone. We are to find our joy, happiness, significance, meaning, satisfaction, fulfillment in God. And as we do that as individuals, we find in God the emotional and spiritual resources needed for the long haul to delight in one another and to surrender our marriages to Him. The great question, the great question is this, what is the governing principle in our lives? If we're ever to surrender our marriages to God as He intends us to do, the great question, the great issue is this, what drives us as we approach our marriages? What is, what is our mindset? What is the principle, right, our basic operating system when it comes to my understanding of marriage and why it exists? It's one of two things. The first is this, what can I get out of it? The second is this, what can I give to it? Oh, to surrender our marriages to the Lord. This must be the principle that governs our decision-making, our values, our perspectives, our, our, all that we see and how we approach life and marriage in particular. What can I give to it? We must focus more on giving than getting. B.B. Warfield might be a name known to some of you. He was a theologian in the early 1900s. He's with the Lord now, a Princeton theologian, very learned, capable man. He married Annie at the age of 25, 25 years of age. I don't know how old Annie was. And for their honeymoon, they traveled to Germany. 
It seems almost inconceivable, unimaginable, but it is true. She was struck by lightning on their honeymoon. She survived, but she was paralyzed, never walked again. He cared for her for 40 years. He had surrendered his marriage to the Lord. The principle, what can I get out of it? He would have walked away from that two years later. That wasn't the principle that governed him. What can I give to it? Allison and I were missionaries in Portugal some years ago, and there, were, there was a couple there much older than us, Elf and Clella Poland, missionaries there for decades. Elf was Irish. They're with the Lord now. Elf, Elf was Irish. Clella was from Lindsay, Ontario, not too far away. And we spent, I don't know how many, a lot of time in their home, several Christmases together with them. And so we had a good, solid, deep relationship with them. We returned home from Portugal in the year 2000. Three or four years later, Alf and Clella, they were visiting family in Lindsay. Alf gave us a call. Can you meet us in the Tim Hortons in, uh, in Lindsay? We drove over, thrilled to see them again after four years, and sat down with them with our coffees in Tim Hortons. And within 30 seconds, it was evident Clella had no idea who we were. Alzheimer's. Alf sat there the entire time with his hand on hers, gently reassuring her, filling in the blanks as they arose, answering the questions being asked for the fifth, sixth, seventh time. And I remember thinking at the time, here is a man who has lived in the shadows all of his life. Here is a man whose name will be forgotten in another generation. Here is a towering pillar of the faith. This is the gospel in action. What can I give to it as we surrender our marriage to God? Because what God has joined together must be surrendered to Him. Here is the third principle implication that arises from our text. What God has joined together must be employed used, put to use for God. The main point is as follows. We must proclaim God's glory. Our marriage is the most important sermon we'll ever preach. It is a lively picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. I'm not making that up. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, it's somewhere around verse 30, he quotes Genesis 2.24. And he states, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, right? And the man will hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds, it's amazing, he adds, this mystery is profound. This mystery is great. What it means for a man and woman, husband and wife, to become one flesh in the reckoning of God. And yet I speak in reference to Christ and the church. What's his point? That what we see in the marriage relationship mirrors the relationship between Christ and his people. That just as Eve was brought forth from the side of Adam, so too the church is brought forth from the side of the Lord Jesus. His shed blood upon Calvary's cross is the purchasing price of our salvation and redemption. 
And just as God then brought Eve to Adam and they became one flesh, so too by His Spirit God brings His people to Christ. And the Spirit knits us together with Him, whereby now in God's reckoning we are one body, an indissoluble union. And as Eve completed Adam, because you see prior to creation there was no helper suitable for Adam. But upon creating her, bringing her to him, she filled up that which was lacking in Adam and completed that one flesh. So too, the bride of Christ, the church, we fill up that which is lacking in Christ, not in his essential deity, friend. There is nothing lacking in his Godhead. But as mediator, as the God-man, he is incomplete without his bride. He is incomplete without his body. He is incomplete without His people. And so as we look upon the marriage relationship, we hear a sermon. We actually see the gospel. We see God's people, one flesh with Christ. And Christ now as the head of that body. And because of that indissoluble union, all of the gifts, rights, privileges, benefits that the Lord Jesus purchased through His life, His death, and His resurrection now accrue to all of the members of His body. And so as we live our marriages before the world, and as we wrestle with problems and issues, and as we seek forgiveness one from another, and as our sins and shortcomings and failures become so apparent and evident, Oh, we find forgiveness in the cross, don't we? We find hope in the cross. And we live out of that posture of brokenness, seeking to reflect in our marriage something. Something of the relationship between Christ and the church. Oh, what was it that woman said to my brother-in-law? I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Oh, my friend, what a cynical uninformed view of marriage. And we understand that what God has joined together is to be governed by God, surrendered to God, and employed for God. We realize that these truths liberate marriage from its modern-day caricature as a bore, a burden, a trap, a chore, and it elevates marriage and sets it apart as one of the most sacred callings known to man. Our Heavenly Father, may you impress this reality deep within us. May these truths come alive in our hearts and in our minds. May they shape our perspectives. May they bring instruction where perhaps there is ignorance or confusion. May they bring healing where there is brokenness and strain, may they bring hope where there is sorrow and despair. We pray that by your Spirit, you'd be working powerfully in us this day. And we ask it for our good, for your glory. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
because of Jesus. All this promise, one for me, when he paid the highest ransom, once for always, for my freedom, I will boast in Christ alone, his righteousness and not my own. I will cling to Christ my hope, his mercy reigns now and forever. I will never lose its power. All my failures could not erase.
Thank you, God, for this time together. We would you ask you? We ask you to help us to live the life for your glory. Would you keep us safe this week? And uh, we just want to say that we love you so much and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, church.